0: Hello, everybody. Recording live from somewhere. All right, we're going to try something new here. This is the first time I've ever done a solo podcast, which is just me talking to myself into a microphone into a Zoom recorder with no one else in the room, hoping my neighbors don't hear the rantings of a madman because anyone else outside of comedy would not see this as a solo podcast. They'd see this as just a man losing his mind. And that might be what it is. This could be how L. Ron Hubbard got his start. I might write the next Dianetics and slowly lose my mind while attracting maybe three or four followers to come with me. But I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. Number one, booking guests is a pain in the ass that I could not begin to explain to you of how difficult it is to line up schedules and then sit down for two hours and then talk for two hours after the podcast about all the things we couldn't say on microphone or all the things that we should take out or all the things that we should talk about next time. I just don't have the time for it, but I do have an interesting two weeks of comedy that I wanted to share with you, and I know it has been too long since I've gotten you one of these episodes, so I hope you enjoy it, and if not, I'll be sure to get a guest for the next one, and you can fuck yourself on this one. Listen to something else then, but I'll do my best. So I had a very interesting two weeks of comedy starting on February 5th, and uh, what I will say before we get started is a week ago, I did my five years, it was my five-year anniversary since I started doing stand-up comedy, which is kind of, it was a big thing for me, and you don't realize how long you've been involved in something until you kind of pass these milestones and five years is kind of the measuring point of when you should kind of start to know what you're doing and they oftentimes say that at five years is when you start to get your voice but i started a bit earlier than a lot of people do i started when i was 27 so i kind of don't have that excuse I knew who I was pretty much by that time and so it took a it didn't take quite as long to settle into my own voice and things like that but five years is kind of when you've been doing it long enough that you've done a whole different bunch of kind of shows and you've been through all different types of audiences uh, you've done all different spots in the lineup you've done terrible you've done well you thought you were gonna be famous you thought you were gonna die You've been through kind of the whole spectrum. And that's really what this two weeks has been like. So to culminate my five-year anniversary, at the end of last week, I got to open for Nick Swartzen, comedy legend, comedy movie legend, stand-up comedy legend. He's got two or three or four comedy specials out. Uh, some of them were, were fantastic and some of the some of the early just bangers that you watched on Comedy Central. He's been in a whole bunch of Adam Sandler movies. One of the things I didn't realize is how accomplished of a writer he was I knew he was in all these movies I just didn't know that he was a co-writer of of a number of them which impressed me so I had that looming on February 8th and February 10th that was a Friday and a Sunday at Tembler Brewing Company of course we had three shows to do it was actually supposed to be Thursday and Friday but Nick missed a flight coming out Thursday so we did Friday and Sunday which is an odd pairing but it was really cool so on February 5th to lead up to that, I was, uh, I, I wanted to kind of ramp up and, and warm myself up, so I went to the Tuesday open mic at Jerry's Pizza, hosted by the very funny Eddie Molina and Landon Webb. It's co-hosted, 7 o'clock every Sunday downtown on Chester Avenue. And they've really been doing a good job of getting this thing off the ground, and they're starting to build an audience and starting to train the audience to be ready to listen to comedy. But on this particular night, no one was there. I think it took about an hour to an hour and a half before the crowd showed up into the show, but I was on an early spot. I was like spot number three. So when I went up, it was literally only comedians there, and there was a DJ behind us, as silly as that would sound for no audience, and the DJ's friend was there. So I went up, and I went up with the intentions of I know nobody's here, but I do have a bit that I want to work on. And so I wanted to go up and just stand and deliver, but I got up and I got to talking. And just kind of got sidetracked. And before you know it, you get the light and your set is almost over. And I was, it, part of me was frustrated that I didn't get to go through the material and work on the bit. But then part of me went home on the ride home and went, yeah, you know, you've been at it five years. And you actually, it's funny how when you tick the boxes, as you check off the boxes doing comedy, you, start, you don't see the progression on the day-to-day basis, but as you look over time, you realize things you can do that you couldn't do before. And I'm not even talking about whether you succeed or fail. I'm just talking about whether you can do the job. Again, stand and deliver, whether you could be counted on or whether you can feel comfortable with yourself in any environment. There wasn't too long ago that if I went on stage and there was no one there, I would have gotten all in my head and just tanked the set and shit on the venue and not tried to make anything of it and gotten all self-conscious and all that kind of like this actually (laughs) recording a goddamn podcast by yourself there'd be a time where I would shell up and not be able to do that but I felt very comfortable on Tuesday night in an odd scenario where you would normally be very uncomfortable so even though there was no crowd and typically on a on a ride home it would be a long ride home but Jesus Christ what am I doing I've been at this five years 32 turning 33 years old if this is what I'm still doing how many years should I be doing this I actually drove home with some nice resolve of there's not going to be many or any rooms from here on out that I don't feel comfortable being able to at least try to do my thing in which is very cool I mean you would think you would think conventional wisdom that it would be difficult to perform in front of a few hundred people. That would be the one that gives you stage fright. But to me, it was always performing for just a handful. It was always performing for 6 to 8 to 12 people in a giant room. And how am I possibly going to keep their attention or make them laugh? How will I even know if I'm doing well? You can't hear their laughter. I always struggled there. So to know that I've kind of climbed over that hump and can still try to get some work done, even though there's little crowd or no crowd at all in the room was pretty comforting, to be honest. So that was Tuesday. So I'm, I'm, it's what I wanted was a slow ramping up of the confidence before the big shows on the weekend, because each of those shows is going to be sold out, 350 people. And by the way, all 350 of those people didn't buy the ticket to see me. That's one of the things you don't realize until you're in the middle of it is you you dream in your first week or month or year of comedy of being able to open for these big shows or go open for a big act. And it is a very cool thing to do, but it's not an easy job. It's one of the tougher things, at least that I've found to do, because you're you're there for a crowd that all bought tickets to see comedy, sure, but they bought tickets to see comedy from a very specific person. And every second that they're at that show and that person's not on stage, a large portion of the crowd starts to get antsy of we want to see the person we paid for and now we got to listen to this guy. So I always say when I go up on stage, there's 20 to 40% of the room that's psyched to see comedy and they want to see all of it. But then there's 60 to 80% of the room that you've got to win over because they not knowing really how comedy breaks down are sitting there thinking, Jesus Christ, if this guy would just get off stage, I could get 10 more minutes of Nick Swartzen. Would this guy please get off so I could listen to Swartzen? so you're oftentimes digging out of a hole and and you've got to you got to work hard to win. So what I wanted to do in that week was just to have a slowly ramping up of the confidence so that by the time Friday hits I feel pretty comfortable to get up there and do the job. Wednesday is Temple Brewing Company's open mic that I host that we usually get a good crowd for and I'd say every Four weeks in a row will go pretty good, and one or two of those weeks will be tremendous. But then one out of every six weeks is just a weird, dead night, and it's uncomfortable, and it just feels painful because it's a big room, and the lights are up, and we're there for two and a half to three hours, and there's anywhere from 18 to 25 comics that go up, despite the fact that I say every week I'm cutting the list off at 20 once I cut it off at twenty, four or five people come in with a sad story, and I'm too big a softy to keep them off the list. So it. What I, I was worried that that was going to happen, but it was the opposite. We didn't get a huge crowd, but we got a good crowd. There was maybe, I don't know, 40 to 60 people in the audience that showed up, which isn't one of our bigger crowds, but they were all on board, and they were... They were just—they came along with us for the ride from start to finish, and it's a long night to sit and listen to comedians for two and a half hours, especially when you're listening to over twenty of them, with all different kinds of perspectives. And sometimes there's weird sets, and sometimes there's bad sets, and sometimes offensive, and sometimes squeaky clean. You don't know what you're gonna get, but the crowd just hung in the entire time, and it was one of those rides home where you feel you feel tired and you feel good, you feel like you gave a good show. So everything was going. Everything was going in the right direction. It almost felt like a show. So then Thursday hit, and that's Rocket Shop Cafe, which is another open mic that's not an open mic. It's like a show, and that's out on 2000 South Union, which is a famous street for being a street of debauchery. But this... This business is kinda of outside of that. It it's outside of the crazy area of Union Avenue. It's in a good spot and it's a great place and it's the place where really really where we say Bakersfield comedy is we know it today started and it's kind of the hub of everything that we do. So I knew that would be a friendly place to go and you can we're we're all comfortable enough there that you can usually make just about anything work and the crowd that comes out is always really cool. They're down for whatever we wanna do, especially if it gets a little scandalous, the stranger the better which is where i got to work on the things that i planned to do on tuesday which is a little bit more it's not that it's racy subject material but it sounds heavy on the sticker shock i'm talking about some i'm talking about some subjects that other people have like it's a hot button issues that people have gotten in trouble for and also people that have gotten in big trouble or done terrible things i'm talking about the idea that it we say that it only takes one time now and you can lose everything but that never happens anymore. It, usually anytime you see someone doing something terrible, if you trace back far enough, it's been going on for a really long time. So kind of it was a long form bit and it goes into kind of some heavy stuff. But again, I know I'm in front of home crowd at the rocket shop. And usually I go up late enough in the night that I've gotten to see a bunch of things happen in the room that I can make a couple inside jokes about the night, warm up the crowd, get into my stuff, and that's what happened. And it worked out uh, that that it went fine. The set was just fine. And another thing I, I I wanted to bring up was that I'm sitting here looking at a notebook right now where I, I still write out a lot of my bits. And Joe Allenies and I have talked about this. I do it kind of in all kinds of ways. Sometimes I have an idea that comes into my head and it comes out as a bit. And then you just work on the bit. Sometimes I'll take an old bit that I used to do a year ago and never really found the legs under it. And I'll try to rework it. Well, there's also sometimes when I've got no ideas in my head or I've got writer's block or I want to write, but I don't have any direction and it may take an hour or two just to figure out what I want to work on. So what I do is I I do free writing. I'll just take any kind of concept that's in my head. I'll usually watch a basketball game with the television muted and just kind of write the thoughts that are going on in my brain. And it's a weird dichotomy because you kind of feel like you're doing something and being productive But you also feel like you're wasting time while you're in the middle of it. So it was nice to see, to go back and see this in a notebook. I was just flipping through a notebook the other day and I found a bit that I just came up with within the last few weeks and I didn't realize that it started from this free writing. I was was sitting at home watching TV one night and I had no ideas in my head. And I had no bits that I really wanted to work on, so I just started writing. And to give you an idea, while I was writing this, I remember feeling self-conscious of like, I'm wasting time. I could be spending this hour working on a bit that I that I have that isn't good enough to do on stage yet, but instead I'm just writing bullshit. Uh, but it actually turned into something good, which is why all facets of this I recommend doing, because you can get material out of anything. So this is... The notebook that I wrote down my free writing on October 28th I wrote basically (laughs) three notes oh this is during the this is during the World Series so the first note is where the bit came from I wrote Mexican candy sucks try this it's tajin it tastes like a cough drop dipped in chili powder quote they made it in our village." Quote, there's a reason it stayed there. If it was good, we'd have stolen this shit by now. And I'll give you, uh, that's not how the bit goes, but it's the idea where the bit came from. If you wanna hear the actual bit, go to my YouTube page. It's called Flaley's Place. And the first clip on there should be Mexican food, candy, and girlfriend. And where this bit came from was back in the summer i I'm dating a Mexican girl right now. my girlfriend is is of Mexican descent. Her name is Lexi and she took me to her uncle's her uncle i believe had a birthday party he was a he was a big time boxer and so we went to this it was either a birthday party or a retirement party and there was i remember there being a lot of boxing memorabilia and I thought that was cool because I vibe on that and it was the whole family but it was just her and I, like her mom didn't go. There were a lot of people I didn't know. I, I kind of met her, her uncle before. I know some of her aunts. I know some of the cousins, but it's just vaguely, hello, how are you doing? Which is which is kind of a barrier anyway. I'm a little bit kind of a closet introvert slash social anxiety, so I'm always concerned of how I'm going to do in those scenarios. But then when you add in that there's a there's a built-in language barrier too, I'm extra worried if I'm going to, you know, make a good impression but (laughs) one of the things i do enjoy is again i'm taking in i'm taking in the culture with fresh eyes and i really enjoy it and there's some parts of it that i love and there's nothing i love more than being able to have have fun about things and poke fun at things so we were driving on the way there and i made a bet with my girlfriend as we were pulling up i said you better believe it was a birthday party because i said you better believe there's going to be a bouncy castle at this party and she laughed and said there wouldn't. And I don't know if I don't know if that's a thing, but since I've moved out to California, I've got uh, again dating a Mexican girl. I've got I've got a bunch of Mexican friends out here. There is there seems to be some sort of connection between Mexican parties and bouncy castles. I don't know what it is, but every party that a Mexican family has put on that I've gone to has had a bouncy castle at the party. And so sure as shit, we walk in this house and it's a beautiful place. And then we walk out to the yard and the yard just looks like a, it's like a living room sized yard. But then you turn the corner and there's another piece of it. And the entire corner of the yard is filled with a gigantic bouncy castle. And and Lexi almost fell over laughing when we saw it. So we're staring at this bouncy castle and then I see there's a table filled with Mexican candy. And again, Lexi is turned me on to all kinds of traditional Mexican food. Not not your typical, you know, the, just the smoking fajitas that I was used to getting and thinking that I was really doing it. She's she's tipped me on to the mole and the pozole and the sopes and all the stuff, that the really authentic stuff that I love. This was the first time that I knew that there was authentic Mexican candy. I'd never heard anything like that before. So she took me to this table, and they all kind of look like they all kind of look like lollipops that were left out in the sun. I've never seen homemade candy before. It's always been mass-produced candy is what I've seen. So I'm seeing these little these little edible trinkets, and I'm like, yeah, this can't be good, but everybody seems to really enjoy it. So she's asking me to try things, and, and I would take one, and before I even open it, the goddamn thing was melted in my hand, like this flimsy candy. For as good as the food is, I, I couldn't believe it just didn't seem right. So I unwrap it and I give it a shot. And no one, if you give someone spicy candy, you should tell them they're going to get spicy candy. Everyone, no one expects candy to taste like pepper. But that's what it was. It tastes exactly like a cough drop dipped in chili powder. That's all it could. And and but I'm in front of the whole family, so I can't spit it out and go, ew, God, disgusting. So I just want, and she's like, how is it? I'm like, mm, it's good. It's real good. And then I I just gritted and got through it. And we went into the kitchen. And she goes, here, try this. And I said, what's this? And she's like, it's horchata. And I tried the horchata. And it's just a cloudy milk-looking thing. And it just tastes like... I don't know, like I just drank pond water. And it, <laughs> when we got a quiet moment, I looked at her and I said, what are you doing to me? Are you trying to, did I do something wrong at dinner that you're trying to kill me? This doesn't taste like dessert. It tastes like a punishment. And it was actually, so I just wrote this down, I guess, while I was watching the World Series long away from her. And while I, and I, at one point, someone got up on stage and talked about something. And in my transition on an open mic night from one comic to the next, I started talking about Mexican candy. And as I talked about the Taheen thing, the punchline punch that I'm ending the bit with was that my girlfriend told me that it's called Taheen and I told her it's called terrible. Kaboom, there's the joke. And that's where it came from. And I guess I wrote it down for the first time during this free writing exercise while watching the World Series, never thinking anything would come of it, which is funny because I've been doing the same thing today. I free wrote didn't think anything would come of it. Felt self-conscious for doing it. And spoiler alert, nothing did come of it. It was, a, it was a shit show of a writing day. So I didn't get anything funny. But every once in a while, you will get a little diamond in the rough here. The other two didn't get anything from, or at least so far. Note number two was psychopath test. Uh, don't feel emotion, empathy the way the rest of us do. Mimic human emotion for purposes of manipulation. Who is a psychopath? Is my family Any? They might actually be. I'm not a psychopath, but I flirt with more of the factors than I'd like to admit. So where that came from was I am an obsessive man, if nothing else, especially when I find something I like, and I try to read as much as I can. So I, a couple years ago, or a year or two ago, I read a book by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed that I highly recommend. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Matter of fact, I need to read it again. But anyway, I got on to reading John Ronson books, and so I bought Lost at Sea. Really enjoyed that. It's he writes a lot about counterculture and and odd areas of life. And one of the one of the books that he wrote is called The Psychopath Test, where he he meets he's chronicling people with psychopathic tendencies and seeing where they may belong in different parts of society, because not only do they have this weird tendency and condition, but you see aspects of it in the most successful aspects of life and business and politics and all that. So he started analyzing. And one of the things I like about John Ronson is he takes the ride on everything. He's a true journalist author. So He expresses his own vulnerabilities and the things that he feels like he's falling into or falling for or that he connects with or shortcomings that he identifies with along with the subject. So it's fun to take the ride with him because he takes it as the subjects do too. So he wrote this book called The Psychopath Test. And when you read it, just like uh, they say medical students have, um, what do they call it? oh God, like rare disease syndrome where for two weeks during medical school, they learn about these rare diseases and pathogens. And for that two weeks, everything that they see that comes through the hospital doors, they think is one of these rare conditions because it's just one of those mental priming things. You can't help every time, once you start reading this book, you can't help but trying to spot out and scope and see psychopathy everywhere that you go. But it is a fascinating book. And so I was reading this and i was thinking about people in my life who may be one and i was looking at me going boy am i one of these and the answer is no because i i feel too much empathy and and too emotional swings feeling for people which is which is counter to the, the psychopath test however there certainly are some of the factors that uh, I I was not comfortable to realize how many factors of crazy people that I have small shades of. So there's that note. And then third, <laughs> third is a, is a comedy, selfish comedy staple. I wrote, this is during the World Series, and I'm living in California, 90 minutes from LA. I wrote, the Red Sox are kicking the shit out of the Dodgers. I love that. The Dodgers ruined comedy last week this week they can suck my ass i feel like i've oh that's the end of that um i don't like the dodgers uh when the lakers make the playoffs i won't like the lakers because anytime they're in the playoffs nobody comes out to comedy shows it's very difficult to chase people out when the quote-unquote hometown team is in the playoffs so i hate it it drives me nuts It fucks all our comedy shows, so I was glad to see the Dodgers take a whooping. I won't say that uh, in any venues I can get stabbed in. Uh, And I was incorrect. The last note was, I feel like I've lost my ability to write somewhat. Brain is cloudy with all my substandard bits of Christmas past. I need to get better. Certainly need to work harder. My fear of not being good is keeping me from working hard, which is keeping me from being good. Don't be a pussy. That was me just petering out at the end and not wanting to write anymore. So I'm yelling at myself, not knowing that a decent a decent little piece of a bit came out of this. So I should have let myself off the hook. But anyway, uh, Thursday, February 7th is where I did a new bit and and tacked on that. that I think I may have uh, put on that Mexican candy bit to kind of lead into the tougher stuff. And everything was going well leading into the Swartzen show on Friday, Friday, February 8th, seven o'clock show, nine o'clock show. And Swartzen was the biggest act I've opened for to date. And the most vaunted comedy name I've opened for since Dave Attell, which was a really trippy thing to experience and very enjoyable and David Tell was he was just awesome not only of course he's one of the greatest comics who's ever lived and of course he gave a great show but he was so nice and cordial despite the fact that I think he has some social anxiety too I don't think that's any secret it was fun to watch him interact with this audience I, I said he was like a cat like if the crowd After the show, would stand toward the side of the venue and let him come to them. He would be great. If they rushed him, he would get very sketchy and uncomfortable. But he knew how important he is to people. I don't know if he would classify it that way, but he knows people freak out when they're around him, especially comedy people. He did all the little subtle things to alleviate the pressure from me That just a real good guy does like before we got started he asked if i would mind coming out to hang out with him in the feature that he brought because he just likes to chat before the show and then we got back inside and as the show started he said hey chris that's not a david that's terrible david tell he asked if i would take a picture with him after the show he he's like he said that he likes to get the comedians on the bill for the night together to take a picture he just likes having records of it it's like no you don't you're just doing that because you know everything in my body wants to ask to take a picture so I can remember this moment and you're doing you're taking that off my shoulders and I appreciate it so Swartzen was the is the most vaunted comedy name since Attell and again it's so weird I grew up watching these people do I was 11 and 12 years old watching their first Comedy Central comedy specials, so it's like watching your TV talk to you, and you you do the same thing. So there's kind of an inherent not peers, but you know you're you're in the same craft in the same world, and they were where you are, and you want to get to where they are, and they so there's a good rapport that you always have, but it's still like watching your TV talk to you, and you never thought sitting there watching these shows and movies and specials that you were going to be hanging out with this person because for for at least two days and and you know six to eight hours you're hanging out around this person. So he shows up and he's got his feature act who's like a like a 30 year comic who every second sentence reminded that he was a 30 year comic. He's he's just a like a I'm guessing he was a road guy. And uh he was there and Nick brought another opener with him too which was unexpected, so there was going to be four of us on the bill, which isn't too bad. I mean, Jesus, I've done, again, I do a weekly show with 25 people, so no big deal. But what it does mean is that there's three comics before Nick, so there's, there's three more comics for the crowd to wait through than the crowd walking through the door was hoping. They, they would hope they would just get Nick for two hours. They didn't realize they were going to get us for 35 to 45 minutes. So you're, you're going to have to climb out of a little bit of a hole. But I'm ready for it and the crowds are packed. I mean, the room packs in. Nick sold more tickets than anybody has at Tembler yet so far, but he came in. Again, he came into the green room, the barley room, and just so cool. He came in and sat down right away, and we started talking about the road, and we were just vibing on stories. He was telling stories about he just came off the road with adam sandler and david spade and rob schneider and he was talking about stories that happened in the casino and he's talking about how weird it is being famous and he he explained not complaining but just explaining how different it is and how it's it'll never change it'll always be that way and we were joking about how different our positions kind of are of you know, the only mistake someone can make in the venue that we're in is they could think I work there, but no one is just staring at my face all day. I don't walk into rooms and they have pictures of my face already. It We were, we were talking about the juxtaposition of, despite the fact that I'm striving to get to that position, how weird I know it will be if by some chance I ever do. So we are having a good time. And the feature act would interject to just grumpily remind uh, everybody but Nick that he's been doing it for 33 years and you know whatever so the show starts early show goes well and I do I do my act and goes the way I wanted it to go and it's uh, what I'm doing is not easy stuff I'm telling a story there's some tough subject matter uh kind of working the room a little bit and using you know going from uh, work in different parts of the stage, going from standing to seated. At one point, I, I got to use the microphone stand to as part of the bit. Um, so there, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And it was it, it was not always that I felt comfortable in the main room of Tembler, which holds about 350 people. Oftentimes, that room feels extremely big and time takes extremely long while you're on stage. But I guess I've done the room enough And just doing comedy enough in general felt very comfortable to stand in the pocket and let the silence sit and and let the time breathe before i get from setup to punchline and it just felt it just felt good and it went well and so that was show one show two (laughs) also went very well And, and and nick got up and smashed all three of course, and and his opener that he brought that wasn't scheduled to be on the bill did a great job, too. He's, uh, Corey Adam, he's out of Minnesota, Um, and every once in a while he pops out to L.A., so I'm sure we'll be seeing him again soon. Did, Did a great job, too. And the second show was a little bit more rowdy, as it is. We do these shows in a brewery, and the brewery has fantastic beer, you know, staff, service, but the beer is stronger than your typical Coors Light. I mean, the beer is nine to eleven percent alcohol by volume. So when people show up at seven thirty for the nine o'clock show, they drink in the waiting room for ninety minutes and they're drinking eleven point beer. So by the time the show starts, they're smashed. And the late crowd is a rowdy crowd anyway, so you know you're gonna deal with some stuff. So I get up and in the twelve minutes or so that I'm on stage I have one guy, it sounded like two hecklers at first, but I'm pretty sure it was one guy heckling twice, but I've been through enough shows that I knew how to deal with it, so I knew how to, there's been, there have been enough times that I didn't know how to deal with it, so I got, I got kind of worked over by the heckler, there have been enough times that I dealt with it too hard and alienated the room and made him feel uncomfortable and creeped out. Uh, there's been times where I've threatened the guy and then it just made it weird and no one wanted to laugh at the bully on stage anymore, but I knew how to do it and hang in the pocket and turn the room on this guy. So he interjected and screamed something and I knew how to calmly just tell him to literally shut the fuck up and the whole crowd cheered and clapped and they loved that. And then about a minute and a half later, I was about to set up another joke and he just screams out, just being drunk, hey, tell a joke, fucker. And everyone everyone in the crowd goes, ugh, like they were they were frustrated with him. They were already turned on him. And I just kind of leaned back, and I let it sit for three or four seconds. I let everyone get their groans out, and I let them think, you know, what's going to, did the heckler just ruin the set? Did he just ruin the joke? I just took three or four seconds, and I looked at the crowd, and I said, there's always two dickheads on a late show, and they, they, blew up again with they clapped and laughed and then took another beat and anytime you can throw anytime you can throw a local reference in it's kind of a cheap trick when you're doing your material but if you're dealing with something that's going on in the room and need to transition them out of that using local references gangbusters so i said there's always two dickheads on a late show the crowd loved that and I said, and I don't mind because I hang out in Oildale, which is like the Hillbilly Roadhouse uh, it's what it's known for. I have I actually am in what's technically considered Oildale. I'm an O8er, but that's that place has the reputation of being like the rowdy wild, you know drunken cowboy hillbilly shit going on. So I just said, look, and I don't mind because I hang out in Oil Dale but can we get someone from the room to handle this guy before the pros come up and when I said Oil Dale the crowd just ate that shit alive so after that no problem at all during the set again the crowd is a little bit rowdy so you had to take your time a bit more and let some space between your bits because they they were really whooping it up uh, I couldn't get, get any clips from it because the crowd was crazy. But it went really well and Swartzen's set went really well. And when I again, the guy's so cool. I come off stage and he'd like give me a pound or shake my hand or say like really good job. And then that that ended and then they went to go as soon as Swartzen got off stage, he took off cuz he knew the mob that would ensue. And they took off to go party because he he spits at how he lives it. He was he was out there uh, at the bar next door, and they were they were having a good time, and I'm not good time Charlie for one, and two everybody was you know everybody was trying to get involved, so I just went home and did my thing. I didn't see him after the show, so I wasn't gonna invite myself to go kind of latch on, so left that on Friday. Sunday we get back together for the last show, and we don't know yet if it's gonna sell out. Because it had to be rescheduled, so they announced it with only three days' notice. And sure as shit, this thing sold out, no problem, packed house. Sunday night, 6 p.m. I go up, and I do a very similar set to the first one. And it goes, it, it goes, it really goes the way that I wanted it to go. It all turned out exactly how I wanted it. And I walked off stage, and walked to the back of the room, and Swartzens in the green room. And I sit down to grab my iced tea and he says, hey, great job, man. Really great set. And I said, ah, thanks, buddy. I, I really appreciate that. And I'm sitting there and I'm drinking my iced tea and Swartzen looks up and he goes, did you say, did you say you didn't know if you were real? And he's repeating a part of my bit that I just told on stage. He's asking me if that's what I said. And I said, yeah. And he laughs. He said, that's funny, man. I really like that. And now we start talking about the bit I told him, it's a true story. And I told him an update to it that just happened to me. And then he, he gave an idea of something that I could throw into it. And it didn't, it didn't catch me until a day or two later. But it's kind of a perfect reference to shoehorn into the bit. So now it's going to be part of the bit. We're Nick Swartzen is workshopping my joke with me and telling me the parts of it that he likes. And I'm sitting there, and now because Nick's doing that, the feature that he brought, he's like, oh yeah, it was a great line, it was a great line, because Nick said it was great. So the feature now, of course now he thinks it's great uh, and asked me to book him and all that shit. So we're cool now. I guess I made it in his eyes, but it's so it's so cool to be sitting there talking to this guy and he's talking to me about my shit i spent my whole life watching his shit he just watched my shit and he's talking to me about what he liked from that so he goes on stage and does what he does and i see him working new stuff out in his bits that i've seen the last two days he's doing it in in he's working different ways into it and i thought that was so cool so but before that before he got on stage while his feature was on everybody's kind of in the bag, making a commotion and he's by himself in the green room. So that was the point that I, I wanted to just, uh, thank him. Cause I knew it was the only time we were going to be alone. And I knew I wasn't going to party with him afterwards. And so I walked back in the green room and I said, Hey, I just want to let you know, um, in case I don't get to see you after the show, I really wanted to thank you for letting me be part of the show. And he said, Oh yeah, of course, man. You did and you did a really good job. You did great. And I said, Well, I, I really appreciate it and shook his hand and said, I'm sure you got a fella like me in every city that you go to that's trying to get on the show. And I I, I just really appreciate you letting me get on and do it. And we had this nice little exchange, uh, for a couple minutes. And then I left. And I walked out and a good buddy of mine who's a comedian said so, did you take the picture? And I said, No. And he said, Are you going to the after party? And I said, No. And he said, You just you should go, man. I said, Nah. And and he said, you know, I used to be like that too. I used to think, No, I'm not taking the picture. We're equals. And I said, No, it's not like that, man. It's not the we're equals thing. It's not like I'm coming down off my high horse to take a picture. It's more like I don't want to bother the guy for one. I he's gonna get off the stage and he's going to a bar next door and Everybody who's in this show is going to rush over to that bar to see him. And all the staff is going to rush over to get a selfie with him. And the owners are going to do it. And the booker's is going to go over there if he can. And, you know, you're going to go over there. And anybody who can is going to go over. And they're all just going to... They're all going to want a piece of this guy. They're all going to want to take a piece of Nick Swartzen while he's over there. No one's going to go over and just go shoulder to shoulder and drink and watch a game and, and just kind of hang. He's going to have to be on while he's over there. This entire time, like, he had a great time. And we, I mean, they, the crowds showed such appreciation for him, and they showed out in droves for him, even though, the, again, there was a reschedule at the last minute. So they gave a lot too. But I, because I had spoken with him, I had realized what it's like For him to live in a world where everywhere he goes, somebody wants something from him. So I just thought it would be cool that the unique thing that I could do for the guy that no one else was going to do in the place was I could be the one guy for his weekend in this town that wasn't trying to take anything from him, wasn't trying to get anything from him. Wasn't gonna wasn't gonna take another piece away. It was enough for me that he he didn't stop me from being on the show. He allowed me to be on the show, treated me just like one of his peers, treated me like he I was one of his road handpicked guys, gave me generosity and time and courtesy and actually listened to my shit, which most people most of the headliners don't do. They're in their own world. He did all that stuff and he was he was really cool. So I wanted to without him ever knowing extend the courtesy in the other direction by just not asking for just the one more thing of the two or 3,000 things he was asked for over the weekend. And so that's what happened. The show ended and 350 people and then 20 staff members and a couple other people ran next door to go to the after party at the bar. And I was basically the one person of at least the circle of people i knew who walked the other way so after the show everyone goes to the right to go to the after party i go to the left to walk to my car in my hoodie chilly night and this is starting to become a bit for me right now it was it i joke around and say it felt like an 8 mile moment again everybody going to party to the left this is sunday night so i'm going home to go to work at Five thirty in the morning and I go to the left to my car and I'm walking in my hoodie back to my car and I can I hear the goddamn eight mile piano in my head of walking back but what they don't <laughs> what they don't tell you in eight mile is what it's like when the guy goes back to work because I went to work that Monday morning and 12 hours earlier Nick Swartzen was Sitting in my face, telling me that he the parts of my set that he liked, and this is one of the I mean this is one of the funniest guys in the world talking about the stuff that he likes of me, and he spent the whole weekend and we were talking about shit like that when we were like when we were in the room, which wasn't a ton but enough and then he left to go do another city and took two guys with him. And left me, (laughs) and now I'm in a cubicle that I share with another person in my stiff, spiffy shirt, and my stiff, spiffy pants, and my slidey, shitty shoes, staring at my computer, waiting for emails to come through. And I'm like, God damn it, what a high crescendo! but then as that next week swings in boy what a valley that dives into it's kind of like when i was in law school we would have these carousel interviews so at the end of a semester depending on what your grade ranking was you applied for interviews in mass and they would interview students in mass so a law firm would come to the school and interview you know 6 to 12 kids and then you would interview with you know, four to 10 law firms in a given couple of days. So what would happen was, you, and there would only be like 15 to 30 minute increments, these quick speed dating like interviews. So you would show up and on a very shallow surface level, talk about yourself for 30 minutes, five to 10 times. And you would leave going like, God damn, I'm awesome. Because people are smiling and looking at you and taking notes and like engaged and excited and yeah. And you're like, I'm on top of the world. And then the next week, it's silent because they're making their decisions and probably not calling you or except for maybe one or two, unless you're one of the top performers or whatever. So you just went on this week from talking about yourself all week and people seeming like they're interested to radio silence. And it's a real mind fuck. And that's what this was like. The Swartz and stuff was so great that if when I was six months in comedy, you would have told me I was doing those, I would do that. And I'd, and I'd perform that way and it would go the way I wanted it to go I would be ecstatic but if you would have told me how far away from getting to where I want to go a moment like that is boy it would it I don't know how I would have taken it I don't know if I would have kept going to the comedy stuff I'm glad I didn't know I'm glad I was naive to it and I always say, if you do stand-up comedy, even if you are successful, I don't know how you can have an ego about it, because it is the most humbling thing I've ever done, and it will find a way to knock your dick in the dirt constantly, constantly, so that was Sunday, February 10th, Tuesday, February 12th, uh, was a fun night, Uh, Jerry's Pizza again, but again, I'm going from a thousand people over a weekend that are eating up every word, even though they're there to see somebody else, and talking with Nick Swartz, to now, I'm in the basement of a pizza place for 12 people who are more interested in talking in the back of the bar than they are any of the comedy going on on stage and working for it, and then Wednesday, is the night again that I host the Temblor Brewing Company at the open mic and this open mic was an unmitigated disaster it was just one of those weird nights where the crowd wasn't as big as it normally is there's maybe 25 30 people there which isn't terrible it's enough to have a good night but it was just a it was just a weird night and like 26 comedians showed up And there were like six brand new ones. And there were a bunch that only come out every three or four months when they see a big crowd. And a whole bunch of people laid an egg. And everybody felt weird, so it was uncomfortable. But there were so many people that we ran for like three hours. So the crowd was just dead. And the comics were dead. And I had gone up 26 times, so I was dead and wanted to be even more dead than I was. Fucking mess. Just shook that one off and did Thursday. Thursday was Thursday. Again, Rocket Shop is always fun. And afterwards, it was a good therapeutic. Um, I didn't have work the next day. And usually I don't hang out after the shows. But I did this time. And there were maybe eight or ten of us that just kind of stood around in a circle. And after the mic was over, we talked for like another two hours, which I never do. But we all just talked shit And it was really nice and it was one of those it was like it was a good hit the reset button on the week from the crescendo of the Swordson show to the low of realizing that that ended where it was to the low of timbler's open mic that week being a really rough one and a really long rough one to this just a good hang with 10 of your good buddies that on the ride home you go like yeah that's that's what it actually is about And even if this doesn't materialize and turn into anything, I wouldn't want to give up those nights and those moments for the world because they really are enjoyable. So then uh, Saturday night, Lexi and I are meeting with a, a couple that we're good friends with, one of my comedy buddies, Eduardo Eddie Molina, and his wife Raquel. We're going to grab dinner and a double date later that night. And I get a call from my buddy, the one and only Joe Alanis, who uh, asks me if I'm in town and I'm free. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, can you, Tiffany Haddish is coming to the Fox Theater. Can you open the show? And I say, yes, I can. That is a sold out show for 2,000 people. Yes, I can. The only thing that could be a step up from the and shows that I just did is performing in a theater to 2,000 people, but not only that, performing in front of the people who make the shows at the 2,000-seat theater happen. So if I stand and deliver and do a good job, I just put myself in their brain. And he said, great, the promoter, uh, I'm going to send him your information. He's going to call you in a couple minutes and give you the details of the show, I say, great, how long is the set supposed to be? And he said, I'm not sure, but I think it's at least 15 minutes. Perfect. And again, at five years, this is, I'm in here, I'm in the game just long enough to know exactly what to do, how to do it, and feel comfortable. So we get off the phone, I tell Lexi that we've got to change dinner plans, we got to do it earlier. I go to the notebook and scribble out basically a 20-minute power hour of all of my all of my favorite stuff to do tailored to how I think it would work for that particular crowd get it all done takes about an hour get it where I want it I'm shifting things around figuring out where I want to go with it that night and I find it weird that I haven't gotten the call yet I would think that they would want to know who I am and speak to me to be sure that I'll be there as soon as possible but I I just kind of keep doing my thing and then finally after about an hour and a half the phone rings. And I pick it up. And the guy says, "Hey," um, says the guy's name. I say, "Hey, great! Thanks for calling. It's it's great to hear from you." And I was just about to say, <laughs> I was about to say, hey, man, I really want to thank you for giving me a shot on this. I'm really excited." But before I said it, he goes, "Hey, just wanted to let you know, uh, we uh, the reason I'd gotten a hold of you is because we couldn't find the opener, but we we found the opener for the show. So uh, looks like we're good." And I said, We're we're good? He's like, Yeah, it looks like we're good. We're not gonna we're not gonna need you for the show, but you know, uh uh we're good. So we'll, we'll keep your info on record and, and maybe give you a call sometime. And I just it's like I just laughed. I said, Oh okay. Honey dicked. Honey dicked. So again, high and low. This is what this is what comedy's like, man. And I, just, I got off the phone and I walked out and as soon as Lexi saw my face, she knew something was up and I told her and she's like, oh, I can't believe that. I said, yeah, that's just that's just how it goes. That's just how it goes. You got to be able to hang in the pocket and just see what happens. But again, if all that ever comes from this is a few conversations outside the rocket shop where we talk shit and laugh and tease each other for two hours. I'm okay with taking the chance for that, and who knows? I've gotten some really good gigs from being part of train wrecks or other things that fell through when someone had my name on file. so who knows maybe something does come around in the future and you get that phone call um and you just gotta be ready to stand and deliver. I was ready to do it Saturday at five years. And in in the particular five years that I've had, when I got the phone call, I was ready for it. And the reason Joe gave the recommendation is because we've known each other long enough to know that either of us would be ready for it. And he was out of town, so he sent them my way. Um, it just wasn't the right time. It, my number didn't get called, but I'll uh, be ready to do it next time, I guess, or get honey-dicked, once again so that was the that was a very action-packed two weeks of comedy that i hope i captured for you appropriately not a whole lot of jokes and zingers but i figured i'd just give you a breakdown of what the comedy life is like on the week to week and with that said uh it's about nine fifteen right now so I'm going to go to bed because I'm waking up at 5.30 or 4.30 in the morning to get to work in my cubicle and figuratively press bumpers, uh, my eight-mile pressing bumpers at 5.30 in the morning, take some meetings I don't want to be in until uh, noon, and then mentor our youth in town, <laughs> even though, I, you know, what an odd thing to for me to do a secret, dirty comedian who wants to live that life, but instead worked his, uh, worked his whole life to be a, a, corporate square, uh, which I'm currently doing. Um, so I'll go mentor the youth and then I'll take a few more meetings. Um, and then we will be off to Jerry's pizza to either have a great night or get our Dick knocked in the dirt once again and I have a good story to tell you guys. So I don't know how long you made it through this thing. Any second you did, I appreciate appreciate you listening. Sorry for uh, leaving you without a dope beat to step to for so long. And uh, I'll be sure the next one comes a little sooner. Take care. You really want to know who Superman is? <laughs> Watch this. Oh! I think it's pretty cool. I can't have no sympathy for fuck nigga All the shit I seen I made my blood nigga. Spill from medicine inside the double cup Double up my clean out that's a double stuff. Yeah. Please not hit my phone if it ain't about no commas. Keep the peace like Dolly Lama big body hummus. back out not the pocket spot and do lobby on him. He Sean Kippy, keep that forty on him. go. Goodbye. 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 I'm hide. I'm popping a pill. I'm feeling alive. 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 I'm feeling alive.